0: To read to you guys a story about something that happened long ago and far away. And when I read this story, at first you may think, man, that happened a long time ago to a bunch of people that I have nothing in common with, and by golly, what does this story have to do with me? That's a fair question. But if we will be patient, what we will discover when we read this story buried deep in the Old Testament is what we're going to discover is God's heart. God's heart towards you and me. Because you know what? God's heart doesn't change. And even though this happened a long time ago in a place far away, it still applies to us right here and right now. So I am going to read to you from 2 Kings chapter 5. So if you're somebody who likes to get out their own Bible and read along, you got a minute. No, I'm not there yet. Stop, stop. Get it off. Not there yet. Poor, poor Steve. He tries to track as best he can with what I'm doing. All right. So because this happened a long time ago and far away, I think a little uh, context, a little set up would be good. Now this happens in the land of Israel, which you might expect since, you know, a good share of the Bible takes place there. And uh, I'm just going to assume that most of you know a little something about that nation of Israel. That it was started not by prosperous people, not by successful people, but actually it got its start when God took a little ragtag bunch of slaves in Egypt and he rescued them. And he brought them out of Egypt and he led them through the desert and he led them to this new land and he established them as a new nation called Israel. And um, he watched over them and protected them until this little band of ragtag slaves became the most powerful empire of its day. About a about thousand years before Jesus' time, they ruled over most of the Middle East. But at the time that this story takes place, about 200 years has passed since their heyday. And what's happening here is that uh, the people of Israel are under a lot of pressure, internal and external, because that powerful empire had split up into two uh, nations that didn't get along very well. There was the nation... Uh, in the south called Judah, and the nation in the north called Israel. Sometimes that northern nation was also called Samaria after its capital city. So in our story that we're going to read, sometimes it's referred to as Israel, sometimes as Samaria. Don't let that confuse you. And both of these kingdoms, Judah and Israel, were weak, and the uh, nations around them kept chewing on them and picking on them and invading them and If you were a farmer or you were a shepherd, you when you were out in your fields, you always kept your eyes on the horizon because at any moment invading armies, raiders from the neighboring Countries might be riding over the hill in their chariots to burn your farm, drag off your animals, drag off your children into slavery, and you would never see them again. And while they're weak, they can't rely on their own leaders, their own kings are corrupt and inept, more concerned with their own comfort than taking care of their uh, their, their, uh, citizens. The religious leaders are also corrupt. The people are harassed and helpless, and they they need help. And the good news is God hasn't abandoned them. Uh, At this point, it's about 800 years before the time of Jesus, the way that God is still with his people is he's sending them prophets. And these prophets are there to challenge the corrupt kings, and they're there to call the people back because the people really had stopped worshiping God. They were worshiping the pagan gods of the nations around them. And they were there even sometimes to fight off the invading armies. These prophets were kind of scary guys. You know, they, they had the power of God flowing through them both to heal and to destroy. And sometimes they even scared the people they were there to help. And the greatest prophet at the time of our story is a man by the name of Elisha. And Elisha, man, he epitomizes everything that a prophet should be. Even his name stands for his purpose, because the name Elisha means my God is salvation. His very name reminds the people of where their only hope lies. So, with all that set up, just keep in mind how desperate these people are as we read this story. In 2 Kings chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Listen now to the Word of God. It says, The king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. But though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Okay, so there are a lot of surprises in this story. And the very first surprise is, hey, it doesn't even start in Israel. It doesn't start where you think it's going to start. It starts in the neighboring pagan country of Aram, which is now what we call Syria. So right next door to Israel. And it's going to start the general of the Aramean army. So... Somebody that we might not normally think of as being the hero of the story. This is an enemy general. But even though he's an enemy general, God has been with him and blessed him and given him victories. But here's another surprise. Even though he's a mighty warrior, he's got a problem. He's got one of uh, the skin diseases that the ancient world referred to as leprosy. So he needs some help. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 2. At this time Aramaean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress... I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. Okay, so here's another surprise. Not only has this enemy general won victories, he's actually won them against God's very own people. He's actually one of the ones who rides over the hill and takes the Israelite children off into slavery. And here's another surprise. One of those children, little girl who's been given to his wife as a maid, has admiration for this general that's captured her. She actually wants him to do well, to succeed, and to be healed. And she says, you know what? He should go back to my homeland because there the power of God flows through the prophets and they can heal him. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. So Naaman told his king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take to the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver. My goodness. 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said... With this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, This man sends me a leper to heal? Am I God that I can give life and take it away? I can see he's just trying to pick a fight with me. Now you can see why Israel was in such trouble. Their king is an idiot. This little girl who's enslaved in a land far away knows more about how God works than the leader of the nation does. She has more faith in God than the king does. You are supposed to laugh at this king. That's his purpose in the story. He's a buffoon. He's an idiot. All right? So, let's keep reading. Verse 8. But when Elisha... The man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay. He sent the message to him, Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. Because obviously you haven't learned, you see, is the subtext there. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. "'Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. "'Then your skin will be restored "'and you will be healed of your leprosy.'" Well, Naaman was angry. He stalked away. "'I thought he'd at least come out to meet me,' he said. "'I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy "'and call on the name of the Lord his God and heal me. "'I mean, aren't the rivers of Damascus.'" Which is where he's from, you see. The Abana and the far apart, aren't they better than any of the rivers of Israel? Why shouldn't I wash in them and be healed? In other words, why did I come all the way here to wash in a river? So Naaman turned away and went uh, went away in a rage. But his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So shouldn't you certainly obey him when he says simply go and wash and be cured? So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the Lord, as the man of God had instructed him, and his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child a young child, and he was healed. All right, so Elisha makes Naaman wait outside. Doesn't even come out to see him. Hey, Naaman is a general in the army. Generals in armies, they don't wait on people. They make other people wait on them. Elisha has wounded Naaman's pride. You know, just if you'll just go and wash in the river, you'll be healed. But now Naaman's all worked up. He's mad. You see... The question is, is Naaman going to humble himself enough to do what God wants him to do? And that's a question that all of us have to answer most every day. Because you know what? The enemy of faith is not always doubt. Sometimes the enemy of faith is what? It's pride, isn't it? It's like, well, you know, God, I don't want to do what you want me to do. It sounds dumb. Or it's inconvenient, or I just don't want to do it. Some people go their whole life, their whole life, refusing to do what God wants them to do, and they miss out on the healing of their souls. So the question is what are you going to do, Naaman? He stalks off in a rage. Luckily, he's got some good friends who give him some good advice and say, hey, look, you got nothing to lose. Why don't you try it? He does, and he finds his healing. So let's keep reading. Verse 15, is that where we are? Yes, 15. Then Naaman and his entire party went back to find the man of God. They stood before him, and Naaman said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Please accept a gift from your servant." But Elisha replied, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept any gifts. And though Naaman urged him to take the gift, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, All right, but please allow me to load two of my mules with earth from this place, and I will take it back home with me. From now on, I will never again offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god except the Lord. However, may the Lord pardon me in this one thing. When my master, the king, goes into the temple of the god Remon to worship there and leans on my arm, may the Lord pardon me when I bow too. Go in peace, Elisha said. So Naaman started home again. So this time, Elisha does come outside to greet Naaman because he knows what he's going to find there is a very different man. A man full of humility and a man with some faith. A man who knows that there is a God in Israel. See, before you have faith, you got to have humility. you got to know what you don't have before you can ask for it, right? So, what's this business with the two mule loads of dirt? What was that about? I want to take two mule loads of dirt... With me all the way back to my hometown in Syria. What? 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 What did that? Anybody have any idea what that was about? Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, in this day and age, in these cultures, they believed that there were lots of little gods all over the place, and every little country, every little patch of ground had its god who had authority over that patch of ground. So if you wanted to worship that god, you had to be on his home turf. So what Naaman wants to do is he wants to bring some of God's home turf with him so that he can worship God where he is. Now we think that's kind of silly, don't we? We all know better, right? We know that is God sovereign, is he king over one little patch of ground? Yes or no? No. A little bit later, one of the better kings of the southern kingdom in Judah praised this prayer. He says, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. Cherubim says another word for angels. You are alone, our God, over all the kingdoms, not just this one. All the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created the heavens and the earth. You're God everywhere. And we go, right, duh, of course. But how often do we limit God's participation in our life to one little bitty patch of ground? (laughs) In a it, it true sometimes you think, well, God's okay on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday I got to do what I got to do. How often do we say, God, you can be sovereign over this part of my life, but why don't we just leave that part alone, right? God, you can be Lord over me when I'm at the church, but when I'm at the office, I got different gods to serve. Or when I'm at the school, I've got different gods to serve. Or I'm working in the warehouse, I've got different gods to serve. And God's like, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it works. I am Lord over all the heavens and the earth. I am Lord over all the areas of your life. Because, see, there's some parts of my life that I want to say, Hey, God, not yet. Don't mess with that yet. Naaman knows better even though he doesn't do it perfectly, he at least wants God to be a part of his life wherever he goes. Now, he doesn't do it perfectly. He thinks he's got to put God on a couple of mules and take him with him, which is kind of silly, but you know what? He's trying, and none of us get exactly get it exactly right. And Elisha doesn't correct him. He just gives him a blessing. Go in peace. Shalom. And You know, you'd think that'd be the end of the story because, you know, you've had this proud, kind of arrogant general, this worshiper of pagan gods, and all of a sudden now he knows who the real God is, and he has faith, and he has humility. And you'd think that's the end of the story, but there's not. It's not because there is this guy who thinks that God got it wrong. There's a guy who thinks that God has made a mistake with this pagan enemy of God's people. Now, you haven't heard his name yet, but he's been on the sidelines observing all this and now he gets ready to take action. All right, verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, "You know, my master should not have let this Aramean get away without accepting any of his gifts." As surely as the Lord lives, I will chase after him, and I'll get something from him. So Gehazi set off after Naaman. When Naaman saw Gehazi running after him, he climbed down from his chariot and went to meet him. See, you see the humility there. Is everything all right? Naaman asked. Yes, Gehazi said, but my master has sent me to tell you that two young prophets from the hill country of Ephraim have just arrived, and he would like 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing to give to them. By all means, take twice as much silver, Naaman insisted. He gave him two sets of clothing, tied up the money in two bags, and sent two of his servants to carry the gifts for Gehazi. But when they arrived at the citadel, Gehazi took the gifts from the servants, sent the men back, and then he went and he hid the gifts in the house. When he went in to his master, Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Uh, I haven't been anywhere, he replied. But Elisha asked him, Don't you realize that I was there in spirit when Naaman stepped down from his chariots to meet you? Is this the time to receive money and clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and cattle, male and female servants? Because you have done this, you and your descendants will suffer from Naaman's leprosy forever. And when Gehazi left the room, he was covered with leprosy. His skin was white as snow. So the verse 26, Elisha says, you know, don't you realize I was there in spirit? Now, I've used that expression. You ever use that? Anybody ever said that to you? You know, they can't be where. With you, you know, you got something to go to, or you got some event you got to go to, you got something you got to do, and they say, I can't be with you, but I'll be with you in spirit. You ever heard that? What did it mean? Nothing, absolutely zero, right? They weren't there. But when God says it, when the prophet of God says it, it means something. It means God saw what you did and He showed me too. And you can see why the prophets, these prophets are scary. The power to, to live, the power to die flows through them because God is sovereign over all of it. And we might think, well, you know, was, was, was God, was Elijah, Elisha, was with a little hard on Gehazi? I mean, my gosh, okay, so he was greedy and he was dishonest, but leprosy? Does that seem a little harsh? The little boy in the back going, no, he deserved every bit of it, yeah. <laughs> well, look, here's the thing. Gehazi's root problem was not that he was greedy. It wasn't even that he was dishonest. His root problem was he didn't understand what God was up to. He didn't understand God's heart Because what was going on through Gehazi's mind is God should not have done this good thing. He shouldn't have saved this enemy general who oppresses us. God has saved the wrong person. You think, wow, you just pulled that out of the air, Elliot. Where'd you get that? I didn't pull it out of the air. You know why I didn't pull it out of the air? because that's exactly how Jesus uses this story. I mean, it's not a really well-known story, but there's a better-known story in the New Testament that plays off this story. See, when Jesus first started his ministry, he was going to all the same places Elisha went, up in the north of Israel, what was once Samaria. Jesus was going back and forth, and he was doing exactly the same kinds of things that Elisha had been doing. He was healing people. He was doing all these. People were saying, there is a new prophet, a prophet like one of those old prophets has come among us. And something that's very key to know is, even though Elisha lived 800 years before Jesus, at the time of Jesus, the people of Israel are under the exact same kind of pressures that they had been under 800 years before. They were oppressed by pagan invaders. This time it wasn't Arameans, it was who? It was Romans who were occupying the country and imposing their culture and imposing their religion and imposing economic taxation. And the small farmers and the small herdsmen were getting economically squeezed. And they were under all this pressure to give up their ways and take on the ways, the pagan ways of Rome. And they needed help. And at this point, they weren't getting any from their own leaders. Their own leadership, their own kings were corrupt and just In their own comfort and power Their own religious leaders were corrupt And just interested in their own power and position And they need some help From all of these awful people Their enemies, external and internal Are just putting the screws to them And so they have this prophet This Jesus And they're hearing these amazing things about him But they're also hearing some troubling things about him because this Jesus is also going to some of their enemies and he's actually taking care of them. And then all of a sudden, this prophet Jesus is there in their midst. He's in their their place of worship on the Sabbath. And he's come to explain what he's doing. And every eye is on him, and he gets out one of the Old Testament scrolls, and he finds the prophet Isaiah, and he's about to sum up his mission among them. And he reads this, and this is in Luke 4, but he's reading from Isaiah. He reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, and the blind will be set free, and the oppressed will be set free. The blind will see, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Every eye is upon him. He says, "That's why I have come." And they're like, "Well, wait a minute, you didn't finish the verse." Because, you see, the people of Jesus' time, they knew their scriptures better than we do. And they knew that Jesus had actually stopped reading from Isaiah right in the middle of a verse. And you want to know what the rest of the verse says? The time of the the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. And that's what they want to hear, that God is going to save us and crush all of these enemies, external and internal, that are giving us such a hard time. And Jesus can feel their hostility because what they're basically thinking is he wants to save the wrong people. He wants to save all these people that are doing all these horrible things to us. And Jesus can feel their hostility, their anger just below the surface. And they say this. They say they were amazed... Well, this is our translation. It says, the gracious words that came from his lips, as if he, I don't know, was a good speaker. That's not what it means. It means they were they were amazed that he left out the punishment part. He only gave words of grace, only gave words of forgiveness, words of healing. Where's the part where you smash our enemies? And you know what Jesus does at this moment? He makes it worse. He says, I know what you're thinking, And let me remind you of a story from the Old Testament. And what story does he remind him of? The one we just read. Put it up there. Jesus says, you know, there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, but only one was healed, and that was the foreigner Naaman. And that infuriates them because what he's saying is God has always been in the business of healing the wrong people, of saving the wrong people, of forgiving the wrong people, and God hasn't changed in the last 800 years, and that's why I'm here. Now let me ask you a question. God hasn't changed Didn't change in the 800 years between Elisha and Jesus. You think he's changed in the 2,000 years between Jesus and us? Now, this is the moment where I'm glad there are no hills in Houston. So, if you're going to throw me off a cliff, because that's what happens to Jesus in this moment, they try to take him and throw him off a cliff. There aren't any cliffs here. You got to take me to an overpass, all right? (laughs) Because here's the deal we all know who the wrong people are. We've all got a list of who the wrong people are, don't we? Now, your list may be different from your list, which may be different from my list. But we've all got a list of the people that we know make this world a worse place, right? We've all got a list of the people that just are there to hurt us one way or another. And what Jesus is saying to all of us this morning is, you know, that list of people that you've got, those people that aren't savable, I'm here to save exactly those people. And here's something else you're on somebody's list too. Somebody out there, might be somebody in here, you're on their list. God, not only should you not save that person, but you better not save that person. I'm on somebody's list too. Somebody out there thinks that I am the wrong person. Thank God God saves the wrong people. Because otherwise none of us would make it. Because what God looks at when he sees who we think are the wrong people. He sees somebody that he loves, somebody that he sent his son Jesus to die for. And what God would say to us is stop hating and get with the program. All the people you think are the wrong people, I think are the loved people. I think they're the people that need me the most. So... so, our job is really to become like Naaman, to humble ourselves and say, "You know what, God? I know I'm the wrong person, but I'm going to do what you want me to do, and I want the healing that you have for me. I want the forgiveness that you have for me." And our job is not to be like poor old Gehazi and look at somebody else and say, "Well, God, uh-uh, better scratch that person off your list." Because whoever they are, whoever they are, God loves them. Because whoever you are, God loves you. Amen?